Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show. I'm Ezra Klein, and our episode this week, I think, is actually an important one. My guest is Evelyn Farkas, and we are talking about Syria, about Russia, about a world that has become grimmer and more dangerous. These are heavy topics, so I'm not going to tell you that what we discuss in this episode is going to leave you feeling cheerful, but they're important topics, and she does a really great job of explaining them. These are topics I myself don't know as much about as I wanted to, and I feel a lot more sure-footed and a lot more informed and in some ways a lot more afraid after talking to her. Dr. Farkas, she is a person you do want to talk to on on particularly Russia. From 2010 to 2012, she was a senior advisor to the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, which is, of course, the greatest title anybody can hold in the government. She also served from 2012 to 2015 as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, for Ukraine, for Eurasia, where she was responsible for policy towards Russia, the Black Sea, the Balkans. Caucasus regions uh, and conventional arms control. So these are big jobs. She was there at the table when these decisions were being made. She's now a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. She's been doing a lot of talking on these issues, has become a, a real leading voice on how to think, particularly about the intersection of Russia, of Syria, of the hacking. All this has become more consequential for America recently and, and consequential for the world if you're following the horrors in Aleppo. As always, a few quick requests to all of you fine people in the audience. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, rate it, share it, put it on Facebook, on Twitter. It's how we grow. I'm grateful when you do it. Check out our other podcast, The Weeds, where I talk with Matt Iglesias and Sarah Cliff about policy, which has become all the more important right now. And finally, keep your questions, feedback, guest suggestions to me coming at EzraKleinShow at Box.com. Um, that said, without further ado, here is Evelyn Farkas. Evelyn, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So you were telling me but before we started that some of your context for all this comes from work you did in, in Bosnia. Right. T tell me a right. bit about that. Right. So I was in graduate school and I was in the middle of my doctoral work. And the State Department, this goes to tell you how, I guess, you know, how short-staffed short they were or how desperate they were. But they put out a call to graduate schools for human rights officers and election officers to work in Bosnia. So this was kind of 
1995, it was, you know, as they were negotiating the end of the, the war, and I was at the Fletcher School. So basically, I got swept up in the first wave. I got sent in the first wave of civilians, which went in in the summer of 1996. So the agreement was signed. Holbrook signed the agreement. I believe it was October. We just had a big anniversary for it, 20-year anniversary. The tanks rolled in on, like, January 1st or something. They crossed the Sava. It was a big deal. U.S. tanks, NATO, mm-hmm. NATO went in. It was about— Just give a quick bit of context here for, for people who maybe are not as— Yeah, so to pan back, What was the agreement? Yeah. What happened? Well, first of all, when communism went away, when the Berlin Wall fell away, all of a sudden you had these countries led by communist leaders that were no longer regarded as legitimate. And if they had a dictator in charge, they were in big trouble. So Yugoslavia was a country that was in the southern Balkans, you know, basically on a neighbor of— not far from Italy, um, un- under Austria and uh, geographically speaking, and Hungary. And they were a conglomeration of Baltic, of Slavic people led by a dictator. And basically, as soon as Tito, Tito died and the whole regime came under stress because he was an autocrat, he kept it in power. And it's a little bit like, to fast forward to Syria today, Hafez al-Assad is a father of the current ruler. That guy ruled with an iron fist. His son was a little bit weaker. And actually, I think that is part of why you see a civil war in Syria today, mm-hmm. because his father wasn't as quite, was far more brutal than he was. Anyway, Tito was a brutal leader of Yugoslavia. The ethnic groups that comprised Yugoslavia and the major ones were the Croatians and the Serbians. And those two groups had their own kind of republics within Yugoslavia. And they started to struggle for who was in control of Yugoslavia. And the end result was a civil war. But you had Bosnia, which was a country that was comprised of, and I'm leaving out Slovenia, which is pretty ethnically Slovene, and so you didn't have a lot of mix. But so you had a small Slovene, but basically they, they weren't very powerful. So you had the powerful Croats struggling with the powerful Serbs and kind of stuck in the middle because they had all different peoples in their country. They had about a, an equal mix, 30, 30, 30, a little bit. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but let's just round it up a bit. You had Croatians, Serbians, so ethnic ethnic Croats, ethnic Serbs, and ethnic Muslims, and they later called them Bosniaks, but they were defined by their ethnicity and their religion. It's a little bit confusing, but the point is that in Bosnia, you had this mix. So when Croatia and Serbia started kind of trying to split apart from Yugoslavia, there was a big question mark, what happens to the people and the territory of Bosnia? Because if you split into two entities and, and you let Slovenia go, right? Then what's left? And, um, and where does Bosnia go? And ultimately, it led to what started as a fight with the, with the Serbian army going into Bosnia and trying to seize parts of territory in eastern Bosnia, which is the part of Bosnia that's contiguous with Serbia, and being obviously fought against by the ethnic um, Bosnians there in the country, primarily the Muslims and the Croats, um, but ultimately devolved into a civil war. And the political unraveling of Yugoslavia started in 91. The war started in 92. We didn't intervene until 1995. It took three years. And initially, the United States did what the United States generally does, and rightfully so, said to the Europeans, it's on your continent for crying out loud. You guys figure it out. But the Europeans did what Europeans do. They wrung their hands. They had lots of meetings. They t- they looked at the map. They met with the warring parties. They tried to get the head the 
head of Croatia at the time, a guy named Franjo Tuđman, and a, and another guy who was the head of Serbia at the time, Serbian Republic, Slobodan Milosevic. Most people actually know his name. They tried to get them to agree on a map and allow Bosnia to be neutral, or at, at times they were going to divide it. And this went on for years. And the United States kind of watched. We kind of participated a little on the sidelines. Sounds familiar, right? Um, and yet all of this horrible fighting was going on. Meanwhile, there are civilians being slaughtered because it's devolved now into an ethnic war where the na- it's neighbor upon neighbor because initially I would credit the Serbs with starting a lot of the fear of the other and whipping up the nationalism. But, you know, the blame goes around eventually to also to include the Croats. The Bosnians were the least to blame. They were really the biggest victims of all of this. They really wanted to live together in a multi-ethnic state, and they fought hard till the end for that multi-ethnic state. But nevertheless, they started, they being the Serbs in particular, but also the Croats, started this ethnic cleansing. And that meant if you were in a village and your next-door neighbor was a Croat or a, or a Bosniak Muslim and you were a Serb leader, you were going to make sure those guys were expelled. And there, were, and there was rounding up. There were concentration camps we found under the Clinton administration. And so the pressure started to build on the United States because we started to see evidence that people were being murdered and that the international community wasn't doing anything. The UN then said, OK, we're going to protect the civilians. We're going to bring them food. They flew in food. They started these safe, safe zones, they called them. They were basically towns where UN people went in to monitor. They, didn't, they couldn't protect the people, which devolved into a problem later. But they could just monitor, and it gave people a feeling of safety, which was unfortunately a little bit real, unrealistic. Eventually, you had in the summer of 1995, so that was July, you had the Srebrenica massacre, where you had an enclave of Bosniaks, who Muslims, who were living in this area of Srebrenica. There were UN Dutch forces posted there who were supposed to be monitoring, but they were a very small force. They, I believe they were unarmed. Um, they could call for backup, but backup was not easily accessible. Um, and there are a whole host of horrible stories about what happened in Srebrenica. But ultimately, Mladic, the commander, the Serbian commander of the Serbian military forces, basically swept through Srebrenica. They took away on buses or, in some cases, put them in schoolhouses and then summarily executed about, they think, up to 8,000 young men and boys. And they just had the 20th anniversary. I was actually there with Secretary Albright, with President Clinton. It was a very moving ceremony, obviously. So that's a, that's a long story about the Bosnian Civil War. The end result was people like me were sent there. We, Someone like me, who hadn't actually at that point, up to that point, studied it very closely. Interestingly, I had lived in Austria in the 90 to 92 timeframe when the war was just beginning. Um, and but still was never went there, never was directly touched, except for the TV commercials, which were asking for assistance, you know, Austrians to give money and to help the the um, the refugees. So um, I was motivated to understand why did these people do this to one another? How did this unravel? Why did the United States take three years to get involved? That led to a lot of dissertation work and then ultimately coming to Washington. Two things about this, because I think it's actually important context for a certain moment in American foreign policy and and the ways in which the Obama administration is interestingly a reaction to a different moment. So there's Bosnia, Yugoslavia, which I think ultimately after 
the ultimate set of interventions. Many, 10 years ago, you called them liberal humanitarian hawks, mm -hmm. felt was a real success. That a massacre that could have been quite total, right. they felt was stopped. Especially because after that came Kosovo in 1999, which was a very short campaign, no boots on the ground, mm -hmm. and we saved the people. Right. But also before that came Rwanda. Yes, that's true. And I think that that's also felt to be the great... Yeah. The great failure. Yes. The yes. one where something, a horrifying massacre could have been stopped and wasn't. So I just want to put that but as Rwanda a... Rwanda unfolded much faster. Yeah. So just in defense, not that there is a defense, but again, I said it took three years in Bosnia. And in Kosovo, I think we were quicker, though there also there were a matter of months. But I just want... The reason I'm capsule historying this is that to, to create a quick intellectual lineage getting up to the Obama administration, sure. that is where the Democratic Party, the center of the Democratic Party is on the eve of the Iraq war. It yes. It worries yes. about... And, and, if, and some of us are still there mentally. Right. Yes. Yeah. So there's <laughs> guilt about a massacre that wasn't yes. averted. Yeah. There's pride in a massacre that was, that was averted. Correct. Some amount of guilt about how late that intervention mm -hmm. came, but but really a feeling that the, the failures of the 90s were insufficient confidence in America's ability to intervene to, to stop terrible things from happening. Right. Had we intervened sooner, we might have actually saved more lives. Right. And we also did it pretty um, in a pretty straightforward fashion with a, a healthy amount of military force. We didn't skimp, mm -hmm. which, which we did later in Afghanistan. So then, and I'm really going to press the fast forward on this, you have the Bush era. Yes where those feelings are turned into support for Afghanistan. I mean, obviously, 9-11 is a big part to play in this, but it, that context creates a world in which a certain amount of the Democratic Party, including folks like Hillary Clinton, are open certainly to Afghanistan and then many of them to Iraq. Right. And I think the lessons of those two are taken to be that American intervention is a much less sure thing than people thought, that our, our yes. ability to, to affect the outcomes we wanted is, is weaker than, than than many had hoped. Yes, but can I back up? Because Please. I think there's an important You, you think variable. I went through that a little quickly? Just, yeah, yeah. There's <laughs> one thing, 1991, and the war we had, yes, the Gulf War, it was like the perfect war because it was conventional. There was no ethnic cleansing, although there was an attempt to harm the Kurdish the, the, Kurd, the Iraqi Kurds, and there was then a humanitarian intervention that also succeeded. But prior to that, when George Bush said, We're, we tried all this diplomacy, and this guy, Saddam Hussein, you know, he's violated the territorial sovereignty of Kuwait. We've got to go in and kick him out. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty easy. The job is kick him out. He violated their sovereignty. He invaded Kuwait. We've got to kick him out. And, the, and they rallied the international community around it. They did it relatively quickly with conventional forces. They put the Egyptian, you know, the Muslim Arab forces at the front. I mean, it was like the perfect war. But there were Democrats who voted against it. And those Democrats paid a price, including Al Gore, I believe. I mm -hmm. think he was one of the senators who voted against it. And all the senators who voted against it and the entire Senate culture kind of that hung around. So when you came to the next Iraq war, the next vote, People like Clinton, Carl Levin, who was my boss at the time, you know, they remembered that other vote. And they knew that, especially if they were going to run to be president, you know, the way right. Al Gore had, that they better have, they better figure this one out and they better be on the right side. So all that happens. And then all these folks who went over, quote unquote, to the right side, the Iraq war is a debacle. Yes. Uh, yes. That comes the limits on. Of power limits of American power. Limits of American power. Realized. 
Barack Obama rises in American politics on the back of a critique of that, a critique not just of what the Bush administration did, but also of the confidence of liberal hawks, right? He's not right. against all wars. He's against dumb wars. But yes. he's quite limited in his view of what are the conditions in which American force should be applied. I don't even know what they are, except for take down you know, Osama bin Laden and individual terrorist leaders. I don't – I honestly can't say I know – what his conceptual sort of doctrine is, if you will, on the use of force. Because what one of the biggest things that I see, one of the biggest phenomena I see, one of the biggest failings of this administration, which makes my heart cry every day, especially when I look at Syria, but also when I look at Russia, is the lack of a full understanding and appreciation for the connection between use of force and the threat of use of force and diplomacy. And and that, like it or not, sometimes you have to kill some bad guys. Sometimes you have to fight in order to achieve a greater good. And certainly you have to be willing to threaten it and then follow through on your threat sometimes. Okay, so this is a, a vein. Sorry, I'm jumping. Uh, no, ahead. I want to explore this very <laughs> deeply. But now I'm going to bracket America because I, okay. I wanted to establish this context for us and for the work you've been doing. You you were undersecretary for Russia Affairs. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. I never get Very that long right. title. Thank you. Thank you. Deputy Assistant Secretary, Secretary. of Defense. Um, for Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia, mm -hmm. which is shorthand for sort of all the non-NATO, most of the non-NATO, right. Balkans included, Caucasus, from 2012 to 2015. Okay. So now I am out of my depth. So coming to you as somebody who does not understand it. What is happening? I don't mean this week, but what is happening over the past couple of years in Syria? Yeah. I, I would pull back a little bit further because Syria is an outgrowth of the Arab Spring. And the Arab Springs are kind of a, I mean, it's a reaction to hope, you know, a desire for democracy, a desire, a greater say in economic and political uh, arrangements in your country. Um, you know, with the fall of the the Berlin Wall and the end of communism, um, the only model, the only economic model was capitalism. And the best political model looked to be democracy. Even Russia today claims it's a democracy, although it's really not. It's just a, it has a veneer of democracy over an autocracy. And um, so peoples in various countries were interested in more freedom and and in determining their way of life. Um, Russia and China, frankly, but Russia in particular, had still this old-fashioned sense of kind of a neo, they have a neo-imperialist vision of the world, and they think that they still need to have a sphere of influence, a buffer state of countries around Russia and Eastern Europe and Central Asia, because they still have a perception of the world that's very physical, as opposed to the United States, where we think, and you've heard our president say, these things don't matter in the 21st century. It doesn't matter who owns this territory, when in reality, it actually does. It's just that the, these other things matter too, cyber, et cetera. But cyber matters most when it touches the ground, right? When it mm -hmm. touches the hospital, when you can shut off a generator or something like influence that. Influence an election. When you can influence an election, <laughs> right? That influences people in real Hypothetically. things. Yes. So I think the, that getting back to Syria, you had this environment where there was a new um, striving for greater 
greater rights, greater democracy. I mentioned earlier, you had a leader in, in Syria who had taken over from his father. He actually took over earlier than he expected. He had been trained as a physician. He was not, his older brother was actually the one who was supposed to take over, but he was killed, if I remember this correctly, and I have to caveat, I'm not an expert on Syria, but if I remember correctly, his older brother was killed in a car accident. And so he was not really going to be the heir apparent and certainly not at the time when he took over. And that actually gave people some hope that he wouldn't be quite as brutal as his father because his father was known for what was called Hama rules. Hama was a town um, that his father raised because it was an, a town where the people were opposed to him. And in any event, Hafez al-Assad, his response to opposition was raise the town. Right. Like literally. And, and Bashar al-Assad also, I mean, there's a press campaign around this too. He's a Western-trained ophthalmologist. His wife is, British. you know, in, in vogue. I mean, there's also not just what people assume about them, but I, I don't remember which conferences they did and did not attend. But you you back up the tape six or seven years and the international press they get yes. has yes. a very different flavor yes. to yes. autocratic, Eastern, you know. And he dangled in front of the West when it was convenient you know, oh, I'm going to reform. And part of it is that during the Cold War, Syria had been allied with the Soviet Union. So now all of a sudden the Soviet Union is becoming more liberal, right? And there was a time in the 90s when the Soviet Union, when Russia rather, <laughs> when the Soviet Union became not the Soviet Union, when it fell apart. So first there was a perestroika in the Soviet Union, obviously a liberalization within the Soviet sphere and within the Soviet Union itself. And then of course you had the Soviet Union fall apart, and you had inside Russia a democratic movement and, and also in all of the other constituent new states that were formed out of the former Soviet Union. So Syria kind of had to go with the flow, even though they still had this autocratic ruler in power. And so I think that's also some of the external dynamic affecting Assad. But the, So he gave every once in a while, he would throw out a good line about reform. And when the Arab Spring came, you know, he obviously understood he had to kind of seem like he wasn't a dictator, but his people did go out onto the streets. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. 
or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So his people go out into the streets. As you mentioned, this is part of the Arab Spring, but it, it ends up having a very different quality of it. And one thing that's hard for me as somebody who does not specialize in these issues, my, my knowledge tends to focus more on domestic policy. The Arab Spring can be this grouping that, that often feels to me like it groups together a bunch of stories that arguably have similar origins, although I think there's a dispute about that, but very much do not have similar Endpoints, right, right? So, where does this go? Yeah. So, the one in Syria. And why does it go? I mean, there? It was such a harsh crackdown, and ultimately, I think what we've seen, starting from his crackdown then on on his people and the outrage that it caused in the international community, and that was the difference. So, so what is he cracking had, down on? Well, he's cracking down on the people protesting, and they were peaceful protests. Mm-hmm. And so, the people, you know, said, "We just want greater rights." Um, we're not actually challenging you and your leadership, but nevertheless, he took it as a front. He clamped down. I don't remember what the death toll was, but the international community reacted with outrage. You know, how could you just brutally murder these peaceful protesters? And that was the beginning of the problem for him, because after that, you know, it slowly devolved into a situation where our president said Assad must go. In that initial because moment. Because he used chemical weapons. Right. And that, and, yeah. And, and what year is the first crackdown? I don't know off the top of my head. So whenever that was. Yeah. But it, it was in the, you know. It was in like, well, 2011 was the Libya operation. Right. So it was around. So roughly 2010, 2011, yeah. 12. So, and remember, Putin is coming back into power now. And he got reelected in 2011. And 2011, 2012, there are protests going on in Moscow. And mm-hmm. some people were even saying, oh, maybe that's the Moscow Spring. Right. And those are the protests that he blamed on Hillary Clinton. Right. Okay. So do you think there's a moment here during Assad's initial crackdown that the international community could have responded in some different way that would have altered the course of what we saw? And and maybe as opposed to having a fully speculative question, were there a range of views on what should have been done there? You know... I wasn't in the debates about what to do about Syria at the mm-hmm. time. Um, I really came into it later because of the Russia angle. So I can't say for sure. There were attempts at diplomacy. Again, he did make various promises that he broke. But I think once he crossed that line where chemical weapons were used. How do we get to there? And and, and here's a, the reason I ask that question. In some of the other Arab Springs, you have a range of reactions from the ruler. Sometimes you have crackdowns. Sometimes you have negotiations. I mean, a, a number of things happen. But one thing is I understand the political science literature here that creates a conflict that can extend in the way that the Syrian conflict did is when the crackdown, if the crackdown comes, it's actually a opposing force strong enough that it doesn't just vanish. Right. I mean, you can crack down and you suggest maybe his father did a version of this. Mm-hmm. You crack down so hard against the force weak enough that the crackdown, you know, in a, in a horrible way works. It didn't quite work here. And, and I, I guess right. why? What happened in Syria that this became a civil war, not a post-protest massacre? You know, I don't know what it was that made the people in part 
they had been ruled by the Alawites, you know, which is a small Shiite sect. Um, and the majority of the population in, in Syria is Sunni. So that could have played mm-hmm. into it. Um, clearly, um, this was a minority ruling a majority, although they also had they have other significant minorities, including the Kurds in Syria. You know, the dynamic, they have a very highly educated population in that respect. It's similar to Iraq, but it quickly unraveled and then, of course, became radicalized over time. So you had the influence of the radical Islamists. So this brings us up to about the point where there's the famous red line Mm -hmm. comment, debate and aftermath in, in the administration where Barack Obama says if he uses chemical weapons, it's a red line. We ultimately decide not to. Uh, attack, but there is in partnership with Russia some kind of deal to begin working through and getting rid of Assad's. Yeah, so this weapons. is an unfortunate um, stage, and I and I would like to talk about this a little bit because it gets into the whole gets into the question of the balance between the executive and the legislative branch. And Barack Obama, the president, made it seem as if you know he basically had made an earlier statement that if 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 we find that Syria has used chemical weapons. Um, we will be forced to take action or something. I don't remember what the exact you know, quote was, but that was the red line, that if, if Assad used chemical weapons against his people, we would do something, right? Mm-hmm. So the international community, including Assad and his people, all expected the United States would do something, right? So we then had evidence from through the international community, through the UN agencies that were in there and others, they, and of course the Syrians themselves provided evidence that chemical weapons had been used. So now what was Barack Obama going to do? Well, he actually decided he was going to take some kind of military action. I don't believe that he ever made it clear what that was going to be. Then there are all kinds of accounts about, you know, strolls that he took with his um, chief of staff, Dennis McDonough, and, you know, conversations he had. But he was on the brink of authorizing military action. And at the same time you had in the U.K., you know, our allies were saying, yes, we're with you. Um, I believe the French were with us. The Brits were with us. But the British leader, and we later saw much greater signs of his political miscalculation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He decided that he wanted to um, consult with Parliament. And that was a mistake because the, the answer from Parliament was no. And I think that what happened there was... Um, what happened in the in, in in UK with the Parliament deciding no, it probably affected the White House. Oh, hugely. Yes, and so the, well, I say probably because you know I didn't have a conversation with Barack Obama about it, um, and so and I wasn't in those right. in those deliberations. Okay, but you used a word a minute ago that I want to go back to, which is yeah. mistake. Yeah, because I think there are two ways to read what happened in both the UK and the US, which is one is that there were. Two political miscalculations, one in the UK, one in the US, to, for the executive to go to the parliament or mm-hmm. in our case to the Congress right. and ask for authorization. Yeah. Another way of looking at this is that the executives in both cases got themselves backed into um, a corner they didn't really want to be in. They did not want right. to use right. military action right. in Syria and they used the indecision, inaction or opposition of their legislators yes as a way to back out of a commitment they had made. Right. And that could be true at the same time that it's a mistake. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my my belief is that it was a mistake. We should have taken some military action. So at that point, Obama 
balked. He had sent Carrie up already to the Hill. Carrie had given his kind of, you know, mm-hmm. um, raise the blood pressure speech. You know, we must take action. Got the Hill riled up. They were going to hold hearings. I know Tim Kaine was pushing for a vote. And then, and I'm trying to remember, I, I don't think it ever went to a vote, did it? It did not go to okay, a vote, yeah. to my knowledge. And so ultimately, Obama backed away from his own red line. And that caused him multiple problems, I believe, in multiple areas, but certainly in the Syria context. One thing we haven't noted, really, is that the idea that the only way in which America will attack is if Assad uses chemical weapons, I always read a slightly different way, which was it was the president outlining such a narrow use case that he thought it it was saying to the Washington foreign policy community, which is more interventionist than President Obama is, Yes, there is a scenario in which we will get involved in Syria, but it's much further down the line than than maybe you want it to be. Right. And so something I'd like to back up to, and I recognize this, these were not the conversations you're in, but there was a big conversation about, should we do more? Much before this, how much should we arm the rebels? Should mm-hmm. we have a no-fly zone? I mean, a no-fly zone is something you've recently advocated right. for right. now. And this goes to something that you brought up, I think, quite interestingly earlier, which is what is President Obama's rubric for the use of force, because Hillary Clinton was a little bit on the other side of this debate. There were powerful people in the administration who wanted us to intervene more directly, not just for chemical weapons, but actually to help the folks who are trying to topple Assad. Why do you think we don't do that? I think because President Obama was and continues to be afraid that if he uses military force, Conventional military force, not special operators, Mm -hmm. because we've got them in Syria and he's got them all over the world doing all kinds of excellent, um, deadly work. (laughs) Um, But but what I think he is afraid of is a conventional intervention, what he calls kind of the boots on the ground, even though, of course, we have boots on the ground right now. But a conventional intervention, he sees it as what he calls a quagmire, what he said, oh, congratulations, Vladimir Putin, you now have a quagmire. You you own that quagmire in Syria. He's afraid that conventional intervention will lead to an Iraq-like situation where you're bogged down or a Vietnam-like situation for that matter, because he is of, uh, old enough to remember mm-hmm. that, you know, where you're bogged down, there's no victory in sight. All you're doing is being accused of being baby killers. And, um, and it's, it makes your country less secure domestically and internationally and drains your, drains your treasury. So you can't focus on the things you want to focus on. And there's a dimension here that – and to pull out a little bit of how I think he thinks about this, there's a huge uh, emphasis on the idea of limits. Are you able to credibly limit the scope of your engagement? Right. Um, we talked earlier right. about things like um, the 1991 Iraq war, which is extremely yeah. limited. We decided yeah. not to topple Saddam Hussein, not really to protect the Kurds in the aftermath. Uh, the Kosovo operation was pretty limited. The Libya operation under Obama, which I think a lot of people feel did not turn out well in the aftermath, but is extremely limited. Stop a massacre. Whereas my sense of what of the debate in, in this period is that – what the folks who wanted more intervention in Syria cannot persuade Obama of was that they could keep it limited. Exactly. And that, and if I were, maybe my next book is going to be called Slippery Slope, because if I heard that phrase one more time in an interagency meeting, you know, more often than not coming from the head of the table, I would like to hit my head against the brick wall one more time, you know, because because there was, yes, there was this fear that 
sort of inexorably, unavoidably, any kind of military intervention would just snowball or escalate. That was another favorite term. And and again, I'm not saying these are not rational concerns. They are. And you have to always consider, OK, but the, but the question should be, how do I limit it? Not can I? I mean, of course, you should ask, can I limit it? But I think there are always limits. And you can always say, oh, we tried that and it didn't work and we're going to leave. And Yes, it's politically damaging if you try something, it doesn't work and you have to leave. But sometimes you have to have the courage of your convictions to try. And I think that's where it gets to the humanitarian angle, for example, in Syria, where, you know, it's my view, sometimes you try. Now, you are endangering U.S. lives. So that that element of it, you have to think through very clearly when you're trying something that involves use of force and use of military personnel. So I think there's a very important uh, ingredient in this that now I think gets to more of the meetings you were in, uh, but needs to come into the conversation now, which is Russia did not have the same fears about this that we did. That is correct. They began to intervene on Assad's side in a much more aggressive way. Well, no, actually in a much more limited way. I I think when we saw them come in, it wasn't this overwhelming force. I mean, for crying out loud, they still have military operations. They're fighting in Ukraine. They've got troops posted in Moldova. They've got 20% of Georgia's territory they're occupying. They've got a base in Gyumri in, in, in Armenia, to say nothing of all the forces that they have arrayed throughout the Russian Federation. So, and deployed on any given day. I mean, they're not the United States. I don't want to over overemphasize, you know, but, but what I'm saying is that the deployment to Syria, while it was unusual because it was the first kind of out-of-area deployment for them since the end of the Cold War, um, and it was logistically obviously more challenging than crossing the border into Ukraine, nevertheless, it was relatively limited, at least initially. Now I'm reading accounts of more Russians being on the ground, Russian special forces on the ground, but they always had Russian personnel in there. They always had their port. And and as I said, they always had personnel, though they didn't have the airfield that they now have in Syria. Well, the airfield seems like a big piece of this to me because of the in I, I never I very rarely ever heard anybody argue for ground troops in Syria. But what you did hear quite often uh, was the argument, including quite early on, for a no fly zone, right? Arm yeah. the rebels, create a no yeah. fly zone, yeah. and. The counter argument I often heard to a no-fly zone was, was was twofold. One was that Syria has much more advanced anti-aircraft defenses than other countries in which we've tried to create no-fly zones. But two, particularly later on, it didn't help them when the Israelis <laughs> bombed their their nascent nuclear reactor. But number two, um, and and this came more concretely later on, was that this could get us into some kind of shooting war with Russia. That Russia had planes going up there. Russia was helping bomb targets. And that if we were creating a no-fly zone, we were potentially risking a confrontation with Russia. I'm not aware that there was Russian air presence or any significant air presence prior to September of 2015. So September I, I, I agree year. that it wasn't. Yeah. I've heard of that so, more I mean, recently. But you're arguing but for a no-fly were, zone now, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Because I think if you had... If you had a leader who meant it, and I think our president could mean it, I mean, if he wanted to mean it and he really meant it, mm-hmm. there's a way to convey that to the Russians. And you could actually have a no-fly zone and you could enforce it. And, it's not out of the realm of the possible. Would... The problem is that right now the Russians, our president does not have a credible deterrent. So if our president were to say, 
really, we're going to do this no-fly zone, and if you go in there, we'll shoot you down. Initially, the Russians would probably not believe him, and they would test him, and that's why it makes it difficult what was, to execute. What was it in Syria? You mentioned already how many commitments Russia and how many engagements Russia was was dealing with at the same time, and, and also at a time when their economy isn't doing great. There's a lot going on. Right, right. Why because was... the oil prices had fallen. They were under sanctions. And, of course, their their economy is a corrupt... It's like a mafia-style capitalism. It's not a free market economy. Why was this worth the risk to Putin that he took here, right? He was going to potentially come into conflict with the U.S. He was backing a dictator who was very much under siege, who was loathed increasingly by the international community. Why did Russia yeah. back him so strongly? So what did they want? There were a couple of things going on. One, which I don't think was a major reason, he was kind of bogged down in Ukraine, and and some people speculate he was trying to get some leverage. I think maybe he was trying to distract his people from Ukraine because it was a little bit ugly and it wasn't quite resolved. It wasn't neatly packaged. He was probably sorting out what to do there and trying to settle it into what it is today, which is kind of a, a lukewarm war. They can use it as leverage over Kiev, the central government in Kiev, but they don't have an all-out war. At the same time, Assad was losing ground. And so it looked actually like his forces, and he had the Iranians, he's always had the Iranians from the beginning, the Hezbollah, Hezbollah helping him, but it looked like he really was not in a good place militarily. So he needed military help or else he was in danger of maybe losing, like the moderates would take so much you know, territory and so, many pop so much population center that suddenly Assad would have to negotiate his future. And the Russians really want to keep him in power. One, because of those bases. But it's not just the bases, because if it were the bases, they would take some other Syrian, you know, hard, hard line, hard rear end and put that person in power. But it's also because for Putin, it's very important that this experiment of the people you know, essentially getting rid of, through peaceful demonstration initially, getting rid of their brutal despotic dictator, that it fails. Because if it succeeds, it may embolden Russians within Russia. Hmm. So he's very paranoid about these Arab Springs somehow coming home to Moscow. One last factor, he was still trying to prove that Russia is a global power. And it was really irritating him that Barack Obama, at least on one public occasion, you know, referred to Russia as a regional power. And he, I think, was also motivated to just demonstrate we're not just involved in causing trouble in our region. So that, that signal you're talking about is an interesting one, that, that he's sending a signal to domestic opposition that if I will commit this much and take these risks to help a brutal dictator who's probably yeah. not that important to me. Imagine what I will do yes. if you are actually threatening me here. Yeah. And of course, I mean, we know what he's doing internally in Russia anyway. Right. You know, he's using all kinds of means up to and including torture, jailing, you know, murder. Initially, as I understand, and again, I, I want to keep saying in this podcast, I, my knowledge here is is weak, so I'm probably misstating a number of things. Initially, there is a feeling potentially that there is a quote unquote moderate opposition, that there's a that there's a democratic opposition. But over time, as you know, the the fighting gets more heated, the opposition becomes more heavily composed, and pretty the effective opposition becomes more heavily composed of much more radical groups um, among them ISIS. 
Right. Well, so and, initially mm-hmm. there was Al Qaeda, and right. we and that and they were the radical Islamists who were fighting, who who saw an opportunity and started to fight against Assad. And remember, they're right there in the region. Right. I mean, essentially, they were fighting in Iraq. Now they're fighting, you know, in Iraq still and in Syria. And so the Al Qaeda folks were fighting, and um, and they were pretty effective. You know, I mean, they've been at this for a right. while. And so some of the people who were moderates, moderate fighters. Th- basically joined forces with them. It wasn't so much ideological as it was opportunistic, which it continues to this day to be kind of a mix. Maybe some of them became ideological because of the way the war continued to unfold and because they felt maybe many of them now feel like the international communities let them down so that maybe they've become more radicalized. But that radicalization process took place over time and really at its core has always been kind of something more opportunistic because the Al-Qaeda guys were great fighters. And then ISIS came later. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So of the things that we potentially could have or would have done, there was a no-fly zone which seemed to be rejected by the administration on the grounds that it could lead to more involvement because what happens if they shoot down an American plane and then there's a clamor for America to retaliate and, and on you go. And, and but, the other thing is President Obama always asks, like, how does this end? You know, right. And it's a valid question. But you ask that question in any part of your life, you know, it's very hard to really answer that satisfactorily. Like, oh, I'm pretty this... sure how it ends. <laughs> Well, yes, you die. But Tanasi Coates is on this podcast last week at this line that there's just not a happy ending to this. In the end, we die. It ends in tears. But but to refocus on it, so there's the piece of, as you say, there's a how does it end question for Obama always. There's also, there's with a no-fly zone, the question of what if you get shut down. And then there's with arming the rebels. What if the wrong rebels get your arms? Yes. And that, that that's part of the how does it end. So and the how does it end? The part I wanted to highlight was that the military does a very good job, a very thorough job of explaining to you all of the risks and all of the costs. And again, get back to what Obama's interested in doing and what he's worried about. He's worried about also the economic drain. He's worried about the drain on readiness. Um, and then, as you said, there's also the question of, you know, how does it end otherwise? There's this famous line. I think this is actually from Bosnia, if I'm not wrong, where at some point, Secretary of State Albright says to Colin Powell, what's the point of yeah. this great military if we can ever use it, right? Right, right. And she got a lot of flack for that. Because it's it's a flip thing. I mean, you don't have a, you don't use a military just because you have it. I don't think that's what she meant. But but what it's she in she that context was, of why, why do you only emphasize the cost, not what we can do? Right, right. And Powell was very much in the camp of don't intervene in Bosnia. The Serbs defeated the um, Germans in World War II. They're mountain fighters. They're partisans. And they'll do the same to us if we dare intervene. One thing that I have heard people say, um, Max Fisher, who's now at the New York Times, but used mm-hmm. to work with me at Vox, wrote a, an interesting piece along these lines, is that there's 
maybe a lot more we could have done early in the conflict. But as it is ground on, the likelihood that our interventions could lead to a better outcome has gone down and the possibility that they could lead to a much worse outcome, like a shooting war with Russia, has gone up. So give me a little bit. Yes, of, but that doesn't yeah. mean we sh- couldn't have and shouldn't have done something along the way. But should sure. we do something? We now? missed multiple opportunities. You know, every day we missed an opportunity. And yes, I mean, I was on Morning Joe this morning on MSNBC, and I was asked the same question. Well, what can we do now? Well, President Obama could stand up and say, "This is an outrage. We need to introduce a res- another resolution at the UN." I mean, he could personally engage himself. We don't see him anywhere. You know, he could speak out on this. He could authorize a massive influx of humanitarian assistance to, even if he doesn't want to get it right there to the people of Aleppo who are in Idlib now over the Turkish border, he can he can he can send it to Turkey, to Jordan, to Lebanon, to all those places where people are still suffering and hoping one day to go home. Although I think that that is a you know misplaced hope because I don't think Assad ever wants them back. So, but this seems actually like an important thing that has happened. One, two pieces of it. One is that as the tide appears to have turned in Assad's favor, um, the potential of massacres like in Aleppo has gone way up. Yeah. So the, the humanitarian disaster, which is already unimaginable, the, right. the horror um, right. has, has gone up. But also I I've had these numbers when I came in and now I'm, I'm worried I'll get them wrong if I say it from, uh, from memory. But the refugee crisis coming out of Syria yes. has been tremendously destabilizing in the region, yes. in Europe. Yes. I think you can trace, I mean, there's questions of how much that affected Brexit, to some degree of how much that affected Trump. So this is this is the interesting point. When so you asked it, me about this interview, yeah. I thought, I have to remember about the arc because this is all, or the circle or whatever it is, it's all interconnected. And what is appalling to me is that all along, the Europeans also have not engaged. So unlike Bosnia... The Europeans have not engaged significantly diplomatically. They've let us and the Russians pretty much take the lead. The poor UN guys, you know, they try, try as they may, try as they must, and thank God for them because, you know, they and the NGOs are the only ones doing anything on the ground right now. And, and it's weak and it's, and it's not enough, but it's still something. You know, I give them credit for hanging in there because it must be wrenching. But the problem is that the Europeans also didn't understand that the Syrian war was not about the effect, which was the refugees. They had to solve the cause. And they never, to this day, have not tried to address the cause. So they're still trying to put their hand up and say, no, almost 4,000 people have died crossing the Mediterranean this year. It's up from last year, this time last year. As I speak, people are dying trying to get over to Europe. Okay, they're not all coming from Syria, but nevertheless. My wife went out and, and did reporting in Greece watching the boats come yeah, over and, yeah. and see, I mean, when she was there, one of yeah. these boats capsized. Yeah. She said to me, which this is a very specific analogy to me, but that the distance, I grew up in Southern California, it's like to Catalina Island, yeah. <laughs> which is just a little island yeah, off the coast yeah. uh, off the coast in, in California. There's no reason anybody should die. It is a solved problem not to let a boat capsize going that far. But the European Coast Guards, the Greece Coast Guards, do not want to make passage easier. So they are letting people die as a way of trying to dissuade them from coming from Turkey and, you to know, Greece. when I was in government, I would say, what if we could we? And I didn't, I don't think I put this formally in any paper, but I, I mused out loud, you know, could we, could we send a ship there and take some people, you know, and bring them to the United States? But of course, I mean, politically, it was a, a no go. So the problem is that the Europeans should have been wise enough to understand that there would be political blowback 
if they couldn't solve the Syria problem. And to this day, they will have that problem because these people coming out of Aleppo, who unfortunately now have been chased or bussed to Idlib, they'll probably be bombed there. Who knows? Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually, I don't know whether Assad will tolerate the moderates in his country because it's it's going to be his country unless we figure something else out or unless somebody else arms the moderates. So what's going to happen is more people will leave Syria and it will put a strain on all the surrounding countries and Europe. So the, Syria really is, I think, the crux and the turning point for all this. And I, and I agree with you. A Brexit had everything to do with Syria. I don't think you would have had Brexit if you hadn't had the outflow of refugees as a result of the war in Syria. So where... And maybe we wouldn't have had Donald Trump. But, <laughs> but that, sure, I mean, there's but... a, a validity to that, right? I mean, one of the fascinating things about the way Trump ran, and, and I don't mean to get us off track here, but Dara Lind, who's a, a writer for Fox, who specializes in immigration, but was fantastic covering Trump. Something that she really noted is that what Trump did with immigration when he talked about it at his rallies was he did not really primarily make the economic argument. He made the safety argument. Mm-hmm. And he uh, framed immigration coming from the southern border, but also particularly coming from Syria as a terrorism threat, as a safety threat. It wasn't just rapists and murderers, but it was terrorists coming right, from, right. from Syria. Yeah. And, and that was part of the context. Yeah. yeah. I mean, close elections. So small things can can matter dramatically. Remember the Skittles? And the Skittles, yes. Saying His son that, saying that, that, yeah, it's like... Would you eat a bowl of Skittles because there was one bad Skittle? And he was basically calling the Syrian people Skittles? Yeah. I, I, I will just take a moment here Syrian to say refugees. the dehumanization of yeah. Syrian refugees. Yeah. Given our fear of, of ISIS, what they are running from, it is one thing if you want to come out, I think, and say with a very, very, very heavy heart that for some reason you think there is nothing we can do. But it is another thing to dehumanize people going through what, what right. the Syrian refugees right. are going through who are just trying to save their lives and their families' lives. Um, my wife has told me about the, the experience of being there as people lifted babies off these boats and then walked miles and miles and miles to where they could check in and waterlog. I mean, it's just, it's brutal. It's inhuman. Why do you think that American intervention at this point would lead to a better and not worse outcome? Because, and the reason I ask that is that the thing that I think frustrates Obama about foreign policy conversations uh, is that there is this tendency to, for the conversation have the structure of, well, this is terrible. We need to do something. Clearly, something would be better. And I think he is very focused on the way something could be worse, that it's a balance. Now, I think the criticism that can be made of him is that he doesn't really think enough about how maybe it could be better, that he's overly influenced yeah. by I mean, he always the ways action can make doing it worse. Nothing. He seems to favor doing – I actually shouldn't say nothing. He, he, so fundamentally, for example, he's in the right place on Ukraine, um, and, he, and he's done just enough. And even on Syria – Fundamentally, his policy is in the right place. And he's done, up until recently, just enough because he's backed the moderates. You know, they're still in moderate opposition. They're still about, I think, last time I checked, although there's been a lot of warfare since then, but, you know, about 50,000 vetted fighters, according to the RCIA, or the people who talk to the CIA in the press. <laughs> um but he he kind of does enough, but he doesn't like to do too much. So I think he's very much afraid of, it's almost like the, the scientist, you know, who's doing an experiment and it's a perfect experiment if I don't touch it, you know, if I don't breathe. Um, but the, the reality of you breathing is you can make it better. And I, I he doesn't appreciate it, that. It does often seem to me, and, and I want to be careful because I'm I'm talking through 
I do not believe I know the right answer here. So yeah. I, I do not know who is right in this debate. But but it has often seemed to me that the Obama administration's view of this is that there is this tremendous pressure that comes from the the Washington foreign policy establishment to do more. Right. And that, that doing just enough, I, I it often appears that what they're doing is enough to say they're doing something. Right. But it's not enough to get any of the outcomes they right. want. That the, the policy itself doesn't quite add up. It's not nothing, right? Because that's politically untenable. You can't look at what is happening in Syria, do nothing. But nobody thinks that the policies we are pursuing get anywhere near to the, I think the administration stated preferred outcome of Assad leaving. Right. And so there is there is some friction there. There's a space in which it feels like what we've found is a, a, a political solution that quiets the criticism enough for it to be survivable without opening up, I think they would argue, to the risks that would attend the policies that have a slim chance of achieving their outcomes. Yeah. So I think this doing nothing versus doing something, it is very deeply ingrained in America and Americans. Like, I can do something. You know, I see someone just as a citizen somewhere in my town, I see something, whatever, I can do something. We have a real sense of as individuals and as a collective, we can do things and change things. And that goes right back to the founding of our republic. So it's a that is a beautiful thing. But again, it's led to overreach. It's led to Vietnam, you know, the whole domino theory, which then we decided was misguided, where we, we started the war in Vietnam thinking that if we didn't save Vietnam from becoming communist, that like all of Asia would mm -hmm. go communist where there wasn't communism already, right? And then again, we've already discussed the Iraq war and even Afghanistan, where we really haven't necessarily succeeded in our, in our ultimate goals there, right? And some people have made the argument, for example, in Afghanistan, that our economic intervention has, you know, just fostered corruption. So there are times when U.S. intervention, whether it's military or otherwise, or anyone's intervention, while it's well-meaning, could actually do more harm. Or, or even humanitarian intervention. If you bring in all the rice to a country, rather than buying it on the local market, then you distort the economy, and the people who grow rice can't sell their rice anymore, you know. So... There is bad intervention, too. And I think it is important for me intellectually to recognize that that here in this conversation, because I don't want to say that the president's fear and concern about that is unfounded. But I think in the case of such a gross, horrendous humanitarian situation as the one we face in Syria today, to say we can't do anything I think is really problematic what because is, there are narrow – because, again, it gets back to that you don't have to solve the whole problem. Maybe you just solve a slice of it. And even though I've also been on the record saying you can't separate the war against ISIL and ISIS and the terrorists from the civil war, you know, that ultimately you have to resolve the civil war. Um, and the administration's really just focused on the war against the terrorists in Syria. Um at the same time, in the same breath, I will say that I think it's worth trying to focus narrowly on the humanitarian aspect just because you're talking about saving lives. And um, and if you can do something to intervene to save lives at a low cost and risk to the United States and, and American lives, then it seems to me the right thing to do. What, what to you is the ideal policy towards Syria right now and where does it leave us? Oh, I mean, the ideal policy today would be one where, first of all, we would provide much more humanitarian assistance to the neighboring countries and to the, refu the Syrian refugees. We would admit more refugees. 
we would work with the Europeans to come up with a real negotiated solution to the Syrian crisis, but we would do it after we've armed the moderates sufficiently so that they pose a threat to the other side, so that the other side feels the leverage, and or we've also imposed or threatened to impose serious sanctions on Syria. So Congress finally got into the act on that, and I've been writing about that since I left government. I don't know why we didn't sanction Russia and Syria, or certainly Syria and then Russia for its intervention in Syria earlier. Um, the president could have and should have done it. Um, so I think those are the things that we do to just put the pressure on the other side so that we have some leverage at the negotiating table. Ultimately, the Russians know, I mean, if they really want some kind of steady state in Syria, I won't call it peace, maybe that's not the right term, um, there has to be an accommodation whereby our side, the Turks, the the Syrian opposition, the Saudis, the you know Qataris, all of those folks agree you know, to the stalemate or to agree to the settlement. I want to use this as an opportunity then to talk about Russia a bit. Sure. The Obama administration comes in. There is talk of a reset with Russia. Uh, Obama has a good relationship with Medvedev, who, you know, is, is president at that time. Hillary Clinton sort of hilariously brings a mislabeled reset button to Russia. Here we are now X number of years later, and Russia has hacked into the files of apparently both political parties and then released one of them in order to hand the election to the extent they could to Donald Trump. This is an issue, I'm, I'm just going to say, that I don't feel I am emotionally capable of feeling its enormity, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that a foreign yeah. government has come yeah. in and potentially thrown the election yeah. to um, a very unusual well, they, candidate, yeah. Donald Trump. They may have wanted to. Right. They, well, not may have. The intelligence community said they wanted to. Right. They wanted to. The only question is how effective the intervention was. Would he have won without it? But they clearly right. tried to help him right. or at least tried to sow tremendous chaos. I... I think I'm a calm person and my calm as a person is actually preventing me from mm -hmm. correctly responding to what... I think you're a little bit like our president. <laughs> to what seems to me to yeah. be a situation that would have struck me as the most outlandish of... Oh, you know, it's like a Jean Le Carre novel. Yes. Tell me how to think about this. I think you should be outraged. I think the president should have been outraged this summer I mean, I had reporters calling me about this. There were there, and there were questions even about, you know, whether Trump's people were somehow cognizant of this or involved. You know, how did we still don't know how did the information or why did the information go right before the convention, the hacked information over to WikiLeaks? There are a lot of unanswered questions and people were looking into it. But at the same time, you had so much noise in the media covering other things, you know, like Hillary Clinton's emails. And Comey was very quiet about the FBI investigation. And the White House was very quiet about it. And we now learn from the president that was intentional because he didn't want to politicize what the Russians had done. He didn't want people to view his alarm about it. And at that point, he couldn't have, I think he could not have said, because it seems that the assessment came later that they were trying to help Trump. So he could not have said that. He could have just said the first part, that they intervened, that they're trying to intervene. They're trying to meddle in and our And Mitch elections. McConnell had said to him uh, from the reporting that if you go forward with this, like, we will politicize it. Right. And so he had reason to fear that. But I think 
you know, I was running around wondering, why aren't they making more of it? And then and my colleagues who were still in the government said, I can't even talk to you about this because we're hatch acted. We can't talk about anything that's political. They had been given a lot of instruction about, you know, not talking to anyone outside the government about anything that could be construed as political. Did nobody tell James Comey that? (laughs) Recognizing that's a different issue. Yeah. What Putin did here seems to me to have been such an unbelievable risk. I mean, I think it would have been very unlikely as an outcome of this that what he got, which appears to be what he's getting, is his favorite candidate and a secretary of state that is unbelievably pro-Russia and a national security advisor who has sat next to Putin at paid speeches yes. for Putin's propaganda network in the United States. Um, that that was a very unusual outcome. I think that what you would have thought is that if this gets caught, and it did get caught, that, I mean, how will America respond? I, 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 it, it seems that it could have been disastrous. Why did they take this risk? Why was this worth it for Russia to do? Yeah, I mean, that is a very good question because this is unprecedented. Again, just so your listeners understand, hacking, you know, hacking into whether it's the DNC or frankly, your email, um, the Russians, the Chinese, I mean, lots of entities do it, governmental, non-governmental. What was different here was that they took the stuff that they sucked up. Now, we don't know whether they altered it or not. Um, And then they gave it to another organization, which I believe is basically operating to help them. But anyway, WikiLeaks. And this organization released that information without doing any kind of check of it or culling of it or what have you. And so that is a big deal. I mean, it's an information operation. It went from like a simple hacking to an actual information operation. And um, so I think that's the point that we want to make sure everybody understands. And if other countries see that Russia could get away with this, they might be tempted to do it. And that's why I don't understand why the president-elect hasn't come out more aggressively, you know, to say, look, this is serious and I want it investigated, and I want it to be prevented again because I want to run in four years. He does not have to have taken the soft line he has. He can say, this didn't help me at all. I would have won without it, you know, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, America first. Nobody can do this in America. But but I want to go back to how to think about it for a second. Is this an act of espionage? Is it something closer to an act of war, of aggression? This is new. Right. I called it an information operation. Yes. So it's more than an act of espionage because espionage is you're spying. You're trying to get information. The conventional way you use it is you don't reveal that you know it, right? This is something else. They basically weaponized the information and used it against us. And I don't know whether I would go so far as to say it's a declaration of war, but on some level it feels like something approaching that. And that's why when I talk about what our response should be from the perspective of trying to get at the facts, I oftentimes invoke 9-11 because that was when something sudden, surprising, and threatening to our democracy happened, right? We were attacked by these eight ra- you know, radicalized Muslim men who took down these airplanes, crashed them into buildings, you know, killing thousands of people, Americans and other citizens, other um, nationals, and 
and it was an and and it was an attempt to basically attack America as America democracy, et cetera. And this, because it went really to the heart of our election, was even more direct attack on our democracy. And we are all kind of scratching our heads trying to come to terms with this new reality, just as we were, you know, in 2014 when Russia invaded Ukraine and, you know, for the first time since World War II, annexed, you know, and changed borders by force. So that's why I think we need a bipartisan, independent commission to look at what the facts are so that the American people can know what the facts are before we then let our politicians decide what the policies should be, what the response should be. What would even be the range of plausible responses? Immediate responses to what Russia did could include, I mentioned already, sanctions. We could retaliate in the cyber world, although most of the experts think that would be escalatory. Okay, can I stop you on that I mean, though very I, quickly? I actually have to be honest with you. I'm not really sure. I kind of make these things up as I go along because I don't know what the list is. I know that they have lists. It, I know that they've thought about it. And you can go outside the box. It doesn't have to be related to cyber. It could be something like the Russians. I'm making this up. But in the past, they've had art exhibits or, or, or treasures that they wanted or something they wanted from us. I mean, we have ways of showing displeasure by using other means. We don't have to use cyber. There's something strange to me about hearing, and, and again, I do not know what the response should be, so this is not me arguing for one. There is something strange about hearing, well, the experts think that would be escalatory. It feels like things have been escalated. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> it seems like it was escalatory right. when Vladimir Putin hacked right. into the American right. election. So, so what is, this is what I mean when I feel that my constitutional incapability to face up to what is going on here, in part because potentially I don't really love the implications of it. Yeah. It feels mirrored in the, yeah. in the larger country that nobody really wants this fight. So you, you get yeah. lines like that, that that feel like they're coming out of a much more normal moment in American politics. I, I think that if I had sat right. in 2013 right. and right. laid this out to somebody, the idea that there would be an escalatory response would have been taken pretty for granted. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, again, it gets to the word as a sentence. So we an escalatory cyber response would be an attack on those you know FSB so the Russian uh, foreign intelligence unit or the GRU the Russian military intelligence unit those units that were involved in targeting our systems so we could target them you could send something in through the computers you know a bot or a, or a code that causes the system to malfunction and basically burn up as they did the the nuclear reactors right yes in Natanz and the other thing is people have also said, okay, separate thing we could do that's irrevocable is release information. Because one of right. the things that people have said, well, if, if, if Obama sanctions, Trump is going to come in and he's going to you know, remove the sanctions because they're done by executive order. So one thing Obama could do that's irrevocable is release information to the public, release information on Vladimir Putin and his closest you know, official or cronies, um, you know, release information on their finances, something like that. It has struck me how absent unity is around this in, in American politics right now. I mean, there used to be a line, and I think it's probably always been overstated to some degree, that politics stops at the water's edge. Right. But right now, if you look at polling among Republicans, Vladimir Putin has become more popular than President Obama. Uh, That's because pre because President-elect Trump ran around saying, I admire him. He's a strong leader. He's a stronger leader than our president. I mean... Is Vladimir Putin a stronger leader than our president? No, because Vladimir Putin is incredibly weak. He relies on 
force and deception to stay in power. I don't think that makes a leader strong, fundamentally. What will it mean to global politics for Putin to get a an America that is pivoting towards a closer relationship with Russia, maybe a little bit away from the NATO alliance? It seems to be away from the China alliance or the, the effort to, to build a, a strong partnership with China. How do you think about this playing out, not just in terms of well, it feels weird. It feels unfair. But how does it play out in terms of the signals we are sending about who and what America will be in this era? I mean, I think the problem is it it depends on how far we go in creating this new relationship with Putin and Russia. Because if what the Russians fundamentally want, I mean, one, they want to keep Putin in the Kremlin. Number two, they want to maintain a sphere of influence, you know, sort of uh, – 19th century area of influence around their periphery, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. I sort of alluded to that earlier. It doesn't mean they necessarily have to control the territory physically, but economically, politically, they want to control those governments. They also want to continue to be able to operate as a global power on par with the United States and other countries. And then, of course, they're absolutely opposed to regime change um, of a brutal dictator by uh, his or her own people. So if 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 Trump signs up to all of this and says, okay, fine, you can have it all, including that buffer, and now we're talking really Ukraine, um, then I think we are compromising our values and principles. And then that's a real challenge to the international order because, you know, after the Second World War, we set up the international system, the United Nations was based on a balance between sovereignty and the rights of minorities and human rights. And that has held up, again, with these big tensions and big stressors like civil wars where nationality and sovereignty clashed, you know, ethnic nationalism clashed with sovereignty and state borders. But we, we managed to muddle through the Helsinki principles, which also enshrine the rights of minorities, human rights, et cetera. The Russians, even, even the Soviets claim to adhere to them. That's falling apart as well. And you see now Geneva. I mean, what does it mean when you look at what the Russians and the Syrians and Iranians are doing in Aleppo? So if Donald Trump were to say to the Russians, you can have your sphere of influence, you can do what you want with these sovereign governments and these peoples, I think that would be a real uh, reversion back to a kind of 19th century world order almost. So I want to actually focus on that for a minute. You had a testimony before the Foreign Relations, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where you said that Russia's actions, quote, stand as an affront to the international order that we and our allies have worked to build since the end of the Cold War. And something that pinged me about that is that in addition to, I think, that largely being true, Donald Trump is uniquely disinterested in that order. He is yeah. not interested in NATO and the alliances. His view of politics is much more transactional. Yes. So you have a Russia that is attacking that order. An America where the new president has really broken, I think, with the post-war consensus, which has spanned both Republicans and Democrats about the importance right. of protecting that order. doesn't even seem to understand its functioning. No, I don't think he understands. That, that leaves us in a very profoundly dangerous place, I think. Yes, because what happens, the reason we have these institutions is to provide some kind of collective stability, and in the case of NATO, collective security. With with the UN, it's it's obviously much, it's different because you don't have an alliance there. 
But with NATO, you have a collective security alliance. An attack against one is an attack against all. And that provides an assurance to countries so that they can coordinate their defense um, modernization, the way that they organize their defense. If that were to go away, if suddenly the European countries were to be less secure, knowing that they are bound together against any outside opponent, and they, that they would start to arm themselves, and they would also start to mistrust one another. <laughs> and that's the other part of it, that we can't take for granted that these Europeans have sorted out all of the pesky differences they have among themselves, because they haven't. And so, frankly speaking, I, I, get, I get very irritated when people tell me, well, you had NATO to keep the Soviets out, and Russia's not a threat, so why do you need NATO? Well, that's a misreading of NATO because NATO was, yes, of course, it was to provide security to those countries that were worried about Russia invading, including our country. But it was also to create stability and security. So when the Soviet Union went away, we realized, actually, if we expand NATO to those non-NATO states, it will provide a guarantee. Because when you sign up to NATO, you're saying, I sign up to good relations with my neighbors. You can't have wars with your neighbors. Now, Turkey and Greece, okay, they bicker, right? But they don't have war with one another, okay? And that's, and that's not to be underestimated. Second, you sign up to saying you're going to make sure that internally you take care of your people and you have democracy and the rights of minorities. And that also creates, we think, more stability in those democracies. So, so yeah. Please. Anyway, so, so ultimately... People like me today, when we talk about making Europe whole, free, and at peace and expanding NATO, you know, Montenegro, basically the vote failed in the Senate last week by two people. It's appalling. It shouldn't have happened because it's not about Russia, although some people voted for it so that they could demonstrate that Russia can't have a veto over NATO's policy and over the foreign policy of the 28 countries that want to welcome Montenegro in, plus Montenegro itself. But, you know... Um, it's it's about making it's about welcoming Montenegro in so there can be stability and security there. But thinking about this from the perspective of a small member of NATO or from the perspective of Vladimir Putin, you had during the campaign Donald Trump repeatedly suggest that he was not that committed to the NATO alliance. But then whatever you thought of that, then you saw Russia hack an American election and it turned out we we're not that committed to the sanctity of our own democratic process, that we're, we're so uninterested in having a confrontation with Russia and so consumed with domestic political incentives, which I think is important here, so myopic about mm -hmm. how to see past, you know, whatever this election is, that we're not going to do anything about that. So if I were a small member of NATO, my level of confidence that I would be protected by America if there was any cost to it at all would be pretty low. And if I were Vladimir Putin, my interest in maybe trying some shit would be reasonably high. Right. And I think I think you could make the argument, and I know many people have made the argument, that because President Obama didn't take action against Russia, firm action against Russia in other contexts, or perhaps because we didn't take firm enough action against the North Korean hack of Sony Pictures, which happened in, I believe, 2000, early 2014 or maybe 2013. That's funny. I had not thought of um, that as an antecedent. That, That's that, interesting. That perhaps the Russians felt emboldened. This guy only responds when he's told, stop it. And saying cut it out is not sufficient. You have to 
do something to make him feel the impact of the consequences. That's probably a good place to, to close out. At the end of this podcast, I ask guests to, to recommend some books. And in this case, I, I'd ask you to recommend books around how to understand some of these issues, Russia, Syria, the global, the global international order. What couple of books have influenced your thinking on this that, that you think people should read? So one, I would say Peter Pomerantsev's book, I'm going to mangle the title, but it's like Everything is True. That is a phenomenal book. First of all, it's very well written. He tells a lot of vignettes, true vignettes that occur in modern day Russia. And he goes through the way their media industry works and how the Russian media and the Russian government have manipulated the truth so much that the Russian people are at the point where they don't care about the truth. And I wrote a political Politico article about this. So I looked at Pomerantsev. Nothing and I is true at what, and everything is and possible. And everything is possible. And I looked at that. And then, I, and then I extrapolated and said, you know, Trump actually does a lot of the same thing. Like he, he, he puts lie upon lie. He layers them on until like you don't even care what's true anymore. And that's very dangerous. But that book does an excellent job explaining how you get there. And he explains how... You know, you start with the Soviet Union, but then they use nationalism, they use ethnicity, they use religion. You know, Putin will pull all these strands. One day he's religious. The next day he's a nationalist. The next day he's neither. You know, he's a communist, KGB guy. It's whatever works at the time, just like Donald Trump. He doesn't care about any of these ideologies. He's not ideological and he doesn't care about the truth. And so ultimately what he wants is a public that doesn't care about the truth. And if you don't care about the truth, you're dead. So that book is really important. You know, I, I want to recommend a book about Bosnia. Um, David Rode wrote an excellent one, and now I'm forgetting the title because I didn't come prepared. But it chronicles the last days of Srebrenica. I mean, there have been excellent books written about Bosnia, and I think it's worth people reflecting on how we how we were in a similar situation before, but we somehow made our way out of it. Endgame, I think. Endgame, correct, Sorry. yeah. And then about Syria, I don't know whether I've seen, maybe that book hasn't been written yet. Oh, it's going to be a yeah. dark read when it is. Yeah, I know. Thank yeah. you so much for being on the yeah. show. Thank you for having me, Ezra. Thank you to Dr. Farkas for, for the time she spent here. Um, that was really helpful to me. I, I hope it's helpful to you. Uh, thank you to my producer, AC Valdez. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox.com and Panoply production. We'll be back next week. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. 